Hello, welcome to Lung Cancer Voices, a Lung Cancer Canada podcast. My name is Christina Sitt. You may recognize me if you listen to our What's New In webinar series. This special edition of Lung Cancer Voices has been adapted from the live webinar. If you like these webinars and the Lung Cancer Voices podcast, please don't forget to like or subscribe. Thank you for your support. Hello. My name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, a medical oncologist and president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series of podcasts, I'm interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country, indeed in the world, to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Welcome to the What's New in Lung Cancer webinar series. My name is Paul Wheatley-Price. I'm a medical oncologist in Ottawa and I'm currently the president of Lung Cancer Canada. And this is uh, number two in the series. We had our first one uh, about a month ago, which was called What's New in EGFR Lung Cancer with uh, Dr. Natasha, uh, Dr. Barb Miloski and Professor Tony Mock. And today we're gonna to be talking about what's new in ALK lung cancer. And you can see uh, on the screen, the, the panel, Dr. Ross Kamage, who is a medical oncologist at the University of Colorado and is the lead um, author and, and investigator on a number of important ALK lung cancer clinical trials. And Professor Nasha, Natasha Lale, who is professor of medicine at the University of Toronto, at Princess Margaret Hospital. Um, she was the chair of the or co-chair of the World Conference on Lung Cancer a couple of years ago in Toronto, also an expert in ALK positive lung cancer. Uh, you can also see this um, as a podcast. This will be going out on the Lung Cancer Voices podcast, which you can get through the Lung Cancer Canada website or from your favorite podcast provider if you listen to podcasts. And in fact, there's one just released today with uh, Dr. Kevin Zhao about his experiences dealing with COVID and lung cancer in Montreal this year. Uh, we're gonna spend about 45 minutes going through um, ALK lung cancer as a sort of moderated discussion. I'll be doing a kind of interview format with, with Ross and Natasha, and then we're gonna try and leave at least 15 minutes at the end for questions. So if you do have questions that uh, you already have or, or come up um, as you're listening, if you go to the bottom of the page uh, on, the, on the Zoom page and you'll see Q&A or chat, you can put your questions in either of those and uh, Christina Sitt from the Lung Cancer Canada team will then moderate a question session at the end. So with all of that out of the way, um, let's get into this. And um, Dr. Kamage, Ross, I'm gonna come to you first in um, Colorado. And maybe you could just give us the sort of Coles notes, entry level view of ALK lung cancer. What is ALK lung cancer? How is it different from other lung cancers? Could you start with that? Yeah, so ALK stands for anaplastic lymphoma kinase. And as its name suggested, this was a gene that was discovered in a disease. It was discovered in a type of lymphoma, kind of blood cancer. And people kind of ignored it for 10 or so years until it was found to have a role in lung cancer in about 2007. So one of the interesting things is because it was discovered as part of a disease, the normal function of ALK hadn't really been well described and it's sort of been playing catch up. We, we believe its normal function is in the development of the embryo in the gut and the nervous system, although there's a little recent data to actually challenge that. But then in most tissues, it's turned off. Its promoter, the thing that starts it off, its starter motor is silenced. But in some cancer cells, they essentially get somebody else's starter motor that sits in front of it and starts it off running. And now it isn't just, you know, telling you to develop organ systems. It turns them into a cancer cell. And that's about 4% of lung cancer. And is this a completely unique subset of lung cancer? Or can you have this alongside some of the other subtypes of lung cancer that we've learned about, like EGFR or, or other types? So when you walk through the door, this kind of lung cancer, which is, which is the first example of what's called a gene rearranged lung cancer. So it's not a mutation. It's, you know, you take a gene that's, that's silent and you bring in another gene that's got the starter motor that gets it going. There's now some other things in that family, ALK, ROS, RET, and NTRAC, the, the other ones in decreasing order of frequency. 
but these things are all mutually exclusive when you walk through the door. Interestingly enough, that rule gets broken if you start to perturb things by coming in with specific inhibitors, because it turns out that anything that can drive a cancer can actually come in in a supporting role later as a mechanism for acquired resistance. But in terms of, you know, if you walk through the door and somebody says you're ALK positive, you don't need to go looking for an EGFR mutation or vice versa. Okay. And one final question for you, Ross, before I um, move over to uh, Natasha. Is there a particular type of person who might get ALK lung cancer? Is, um, to, if, if we lined up ALK lung cancer people in one room and everybody else with lung cancer in another room, do those rooms look the same? So that's a, that's a great question. So the, the answer is yes, and then a word of caution. So yes, they are more likely to be younger than people with you know your common or garden lung cancer. They are more likely to have you know, no smoking history, a very light smoking history. There's no particular age predisposition. There's no particular race predisposition. But here's the word of caution. These things are you know games that you play in the clinic to say, oh, here is a you know. 35 year old man or a you know, 35 year old woman who's never smoked and you know, they have a particular pattern of spread, maybe they're gonna be out positive. But that A, that's not a substitute for testing. And the other one is, even if you're a 85 year old man who smoked, I would still test you for ALK because the only thing that changes is the frequency of positivity, which changes the health economics. But if it was your mom or your dad, I'd still test them. Right. Yes, and I think in, in, in my practice, I have 20-year-olds, 60-year-olds, and 80-year-olds with ALK lung cancer in, in my practice. Okay, so thank you for that. So that's the kind of uh, basic introduction. I like your starter motor analogy. I've not heard that before. Right, Dr. Lael, so tell us, how, how, how do you treat ALK lung cancer, and how do you do that differently than you would a different type of cancer? Oh, thanks, Paul. So... Uh... What's been very interesting about ALK is it's really the second group, people with ALK positive lung cancer are the second group of people with lung cancer where we found tablets or targeted therapies that work much better than chemotherapy. And since, so since about 2015 in Canada, we've been able to use a drug called crizotinib. It was the first of the targeted therapies for people with ALK positive lung cancer. But currently in Canada, we have uh, at least three approved drugs, three approved tablets as initial therapy or the first type of therapy somebody could have if they had ALK positive lung cancer that spread to other organs or what we call stage four disease. Um, and the one that we most commonly use is the most recent one uh, that's been approved, which is called electinib. However, in the literature and you know things that Dr. Kamage and others have been publishing, there are actually six tablets that are potential options. And of course the challenge is, you know, which tablet is the best and, and who should have which tablet. And that's, that remains, you know, a real discussion. But currently today, if you were a patient and you had stage four ALK positive lung cancer, your oncologist would probably offer you electinib. Uh, currently crizotinib, seritinib and electinib are pretty widely funded across all of the provinces. So almost all the patients get access. Uh, some of the other drugs that are approved but not funded include brigatinib. Dr. Kamich has done a lot of work on brigatinib, and we've been happy to, to be part of that program as well. And more recently, lorlatinib. These drugs, even though they're approved by Health Canada, which means that they're safe and they work, they're not actually funded through the public system. And these drugs most commonly are approved after uh, the first three drugs that I've mentioned, crizotinib, seritinib, or electinib stop working uh, as subsequent therapy. Uh, electinib uh, currently is, is also approved after, for example, crizotinib fails, but I think very few people today are being started on crizotinib. Almost everybody's being started on electinib. Now, when it comes to diagnosis, we've actually been very lucky in Canada. Um, some of the tests can be very expensive. Lung cancer is a common disease and you don't want to miss anyone that has ALK positive lung cancer. So Dr. Ming Chow, who's one of our pathologists, actually led the charge and he developed a fairly simple and inexpensive protein test that has really helped us identify people that will benefit from ALK targeted therapy. And so that's really our first step in diagnosing this. And of course, there are other ways that are more expensive and certainly evolving to diagnose ALK positive lung cancer as well. So we currently test almost everyone with advanced lung cancer, something called non-squamous uh, type of a type of lung cancer, which, which is the most common. So I think, you know, just so basically electinib would be our first choice. And then I think we're going to talk a bit later about, you know, what do you do if and when electinib stops working? So I'm just going to try and recap that, Natasha, because there's a lot of information in there. 
oral therapy, they're all tablets. You, you said in Canada, we've got three approved, electinib, crizotinib, which was the first one, and uh, seritinib. And, but now we're using electinib as the first option for people newly diagnosed. Could you just maybe touch on why, why are we doing that? Why are we using electinib first instead of seritinib or crizotinib or some of the other ones, brigatinib, lolatinib, and then I think the newest one, insartinib. So what, why, why electinib? Thanks, Paul. So, you know, initially the, the first couple of drugs, crizotinib and seritinib, were shown to be better than chemotherapy as that first treatment for people with stage four disease. And electinib was compared uh, in uh, two trials, one uh, out of Japan called the J-Alex trial, and another called the Alex trial, which apparently was named after Dr. Cambage's daughter. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but it really showed that people that got electinib, there she is, there's Alex, very famous there on the screen. But it really showed that electinib was better than, than the original drug, cruzotinib, in terms of protecting people from cancer spreading to the brain or progressing in the, in the brain, uh, as well as also having some uh, greater effect at protecting people from cancer growing in the body. And so that's why we've really uh, switched almost whole, a wholesale to electinib. For, for people that are out there who are currently on crizotinib and doing well, actually at this point, we wouldn't necessarily switch to electinib because we have shown that some people can do incredibly well on crizotinib. They can go for years on crizotinib and then they can actually switch to electinib later if crizotinib stops working. So, so if you are on crizotinib, please don't panic. Uh, always good to have a conversation with your oncologist about whether you should switch to one of these newer drugs but most people actually if you're doing well and your cancer's under good control can stay on it but our first choice currently in 2020 is electinib for that better control uh, both in the body and the brain okay great thank you so back to um alex alex next question's no it's just kidding it's for your dad <laughs> ross what what's the what's the difference between alk drugs and chemotherapy in terms of people's quality of life and their chance of longer term survival. Okay, so would you, Alex, could you give me a second here? Okay, thanks. There's only so much I can do with a eight-year-old, soon to be nine-year-old on my lap. So, I mean, the, the pills are obviously much more convenient than chemotherapy. I mean, the chemotherapy isn't horrible, but the quality of life for all of the studies, with the exception of the seritinib study, that compared it to chemotherapy is always much better with the pill. Seritinib really struggled with some toxicities, mostly you know nausea and diarrhea. Got a little better when they changed the dosing, but actually in its head-to-head -head study, it actually had a higher rate of severe side effects than the chemotherapy. So that's the exception. For most of the other ones, you know they're they're much better tolerated. They're not completely free from side effects, and they vary by the drug. And I don't know if we're going to talk about it now or maybe we'll talk about it later, but certainly the different side effect profiles between these drugs, uh, these ALK inhibitors might influence which ones you start with and your choices when you could have A or B or C. Okay, so in general, seritinib aside, much easier than chemotherapy, more convenient because it's a pill. And what about that survivorship question? How much better are these drugs than traditional chemotherapy in terms of helping people to have their cancer under control for a long time? Well, I'm, ready, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things I'm hoping that we're going to go into when we start to talk about the, you know, the whole spectrum of what you're going to treat people with is you know, traditionally in oncology, we focused on something called the progression-free survival, the time it takes you know, on whatever that initial treatment is before your cancer grows. And we focused very much on that but partly because it's, it was an, an earlier readout, but also because there wasn't you know, for many people, by the time your cancer was growing, you know, you could sort of see the writing on the wall. And the, the great thing about ALK positive lung cancer is where the PFS is starting to look a lot more like the time to your next treatment decision, as opposed to, you know, is that the death knell ringing? And that becomes very important when we start to think about quality of life on these treatments, because we want maximal time. And it doesn't really matter if you're changing the tools you use it. We want maximal control of cancer and minimal side effects. Um, I've forgotten where I was going with this. Overall survival, I remember now. And what it, the thing is, ALK is actually this very forgiving disease in some people that you can play catch up later. So ironically, in a study that we published last year or the year before with over 100 ALK positive patients, 
it didn't, your overall survival was still pretty awesome. At least in our series, it was, you know, the median, the 50% point was seven years uh, for stage four cancer. Um, and it didn't matter if you started on chemo or not, because if you started on chemo, you could catch up. The key thing is making sure you have access to these other treatments. So I think when you look at clinical trials where they've shown an overall survival effect, you've got to ask yourself the question, is the access to treatment in later lines the same as what you would have in your own corner of the world? Okay. Actually, that's a great segue to the next question I had sort of lined up, which is, which is for Natasha. But I'm going to take words you said, Ross, and uh, hopefully not butcher them completely. But you said seven years in, in that series that you published. But maybe to put that in context, for stage four lung cancer, historically, overall, you know, survival time has been measured in a year or so. Um, yes, yeah, the, the, other, the other way, I mean, you can, you can express survival in different ways, but let's say you did something like a landmark analysis. So what, you know, you're diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, you feel your world is falling apart. What is your chance that you are going to be alive in one year's time? I mean, that's a pretty, you know, black and white endpoint. For general lung cancer, Natasha, I don't quite know what you, you would be, be quoting, but you know, maybe 20, 30% chance. I mean, it's probably got better with immunotherapy now, but historically that was the rate. For ALK, that's pushing 80 plus percent. Right, that's a great way of putting it. I think I'm more optimistic than you. I, I think I get higher than 20 to 30%. Uh, I'm going by the old-fashioned chemotherapy studies. Okay. All right, but drastically different. That's, yeah. that's taken yeah, from yeah. that. Okay, so I'm going to go on to Natasha because Ross was just saying there that you know this important feature is you can catch up with you know having sequences of treatments. So you you know now in Canada you were saying and, and the same here in Ottawa that our first choice of treatment usually is electinib. So. For somebody who's been on electinib for a while, hopefully a long while, but now it's stopped working, what do you do there? So it's it's a great question. It's it's never a question anyone wants to face in clinic because uh, these are great drugs and they can work for a really long time. But, but the first question I always ask is, well, where did it stop working? Was it in one part of the body? Was it just in the brain? Is it one spot? Is it something that we maybe could use a completely different kind of therapy for like radiation, sometimes even surgery? Um, so a completely non-drug based approach. Um, and then there's potentially the option to either continue electinib or not, and that's another discussion. Where you can't use something local, the other question that I ask is, well, why did it stop working? And, and some nice work from Dr. Kamage and others, uh, has shown that there's there's sort of three different groups uh, of people, uh, three groups of changes where where the electinib, for example, would stop working. So one is that in addition to this ALK fusion or translocation, you get a new change in the gene, a new mutation, something I would call an emergent mutation. Sometimes you can have a couple of mutations or compound mutations. In another group of people, you know, the cancer stops signaling throughout because we've blocked that pretty well with the electinib and it starts using another pathway or cancer pathway. And there are a large number of those, EGFR is one of them met, uh, many others. And then the third one is, you know, well, we actually haven't figured this out yet, but there's a lot of interest. And so, you know, where compound mutations or there's an emergent mutation, something like lorlatinib or one of the other newer generation inhibitors, you know, I think it's very promising and very active. It can still work in the other two groups, but the, the chance of success is, is a little bit lower. Now, having said that, you know, in Canada, really our options are, you know, after lectinib, we really want our patients to continue target therapy. So we would offer lorlatinib to almost everybody that we could get it for. There are also clinical trials, for example, or the option to get brigatinib um, or, or go on other studies. Now, where we're worried about that or where we think it may not work, uh, we may then talk to people about chemotherapy. Nobody likes the word chemotherapy, but the truth is chemo is a lot better than it used to be when I started uh, and uh, then when Dr. Dr. Kenner started and, uh, and it can work incredibly well. You know, I have patients who, who are on chemotherapy, often gentle chemotherapy, a drug called Pemetrexin in particular, and they can be on treatment for years and years and years. So chemotherapy, even though nobody likes it, can, can be an option. So you know, first, where is it? Can we look after it locally? 
If we need to switch drugs, you know, is lorlatinib our best choice? Can we get it? Um, or brigatinib, for example, or going on a trial? Um, you know, one of the questions, one of the challenges we have in Canada is, you know, that question of why has elective stopped working and how do we figure that out? So there, there, you know, there's, we can have a repeat biopsy of the tumor. Uh, we've been really interested in blood tests, something called a liquid biopsy, where we can find some of these gene mutations and other abnormalities that might be driving the cancer. Um, biopsies, of course, are hard because, you know, they're uncomfortable, they hurt, they can't have risk. Uh, liquid biopsies can be great. They don't pick up everything necessarily, but they can be really helpful. They're just a little more challenging to get in the Canadian system. So currently your oncologist would try and enroll you in a free program or a trial or, or see what else could be done uh, to get you a liquid biopsy. Also the science of tailoring treatment is it's not perfect, right? So just because I find a mutation doesn't mean 100% low Latin is going to work, or, you know, if we don't find it, that, you know, you should have chemo. So it's not perfect yet. Um, you know, after lactinib, we try for another targeted therapy. If not, we would try for chemotherapy. Okay. So lolatinib would be your first choice, probably maybe brigatinib, if not chemotherapy, or maybe you could sequence those. Maybe one more question I think about access to these drugs. Uh, and this might, I know I'm throwing you a tough question here because the answer might not necessarily be all that palatable. Lorlatinib and brigatinib are not yet approved in Canada for use after electinib. And how can you therefore prescribe it? So Paul, I think it's such an incredible challenge. You know, we know the drug has activity. We know that our patients, patients in other countries, can access these drugs and yet in Canada, you know, it's, it's that much harder. So usually what I do is I reach out to the drug manufacturer. There are a number of compassionate programs. We also look at trials um, and, and we do, and I think oncologists across the country work really hard for all positive patients to make sure that they can get the next, um, you know, latest and greatest treatment or targeted therapy, despite the fact that it's not currently funded. So that, that's what we do currently. It's not ideal. Um, you know, what do you do when these programs close or if, if your patient's not able to get these therapies? That's very, very challenging, but it's currently the Canadian reality and I think we're hoping it will change soon. I think a good thing about the Canadian situation though is we are a very collegial group in the lung cancer community. And so it is very frequent that if somebody is running into uh, trouble on a drug that we'll get on the we'll get on, I was going to say, we'll get on the blower, but that's probably an English phrase, but we get on the phone or we get on email to our group across the country to see who has access to a trial or to a new drug. And so, you know, Natasha is currently helping me with a couple of people that uh, I wanted to, uh, to access a drug, which we don't have in Ottawa, but she has in, in Toronto at the moment. And it could be that it goes the other way around on occasion. And certainly I've been in touch with Ross on, on a number of occasions for advice or guidance on cases. So there's, it's a very good community for that. Okay, Ross, Natasha, was you're in a different healthcare system to us in, in Colorado with probably some better things and some things that you don't like as much. What do, what do you do? Are you able to cycle through all of the different alt drugs? And do you have the same positive opinion about chemotherapy? But don't answer yet about immunotherapy because I'm going to ask you that as a separate question. Okay. So what we do in our little kind of you know ivory tower is probably somewhat different from what goes on in the community in the in the USA. And so you know just to sort of toot Canada's horn, you know there there are very few general oncologists in Canada, whereas we have you know general oncologists in in the community who. Um, you know, part because of the size of the country, but also you know there there are people who who don't want to reduce their opportunities for for billing they want to see every patient that comes through the door so it's you know these people have a very tough job and they have to stay up to speed with everything in in terms of access to drugs i'm going to get to your question in a second but in terms of access to drugs you know yes you, we are we are the you know the the alpha and the omega of access to drugs in the sense that if you have good insurance you can get anything on the planet and if you have no insurance you can get absolutely nothing and so we have all of the extremes and so again, you know, Canada's, you know, you could, this is a long debate over coffee, whether the, the average in Canada may well be better than the, these extremes here. But let me tell you what I actually do. So for a period of time, when you had no alternative other than chemotherapy, 
then it seemed to make sense that, you know, these biopsies were just a luxury. They were kind of a research tool. And, you know, if you found a mutation, you were going to go on to the next ALK inhibitor. And if you didn't, you were still going to try the next ALK inhibitor because your alternative was chemotherapy. That I think is now changing and it's changing for two reasons. So one is there are not all of these next generation ALK inhibitors are equally well tolerated. And so, um, Certainly in my hands, seritinib is the least well-tolerated, but then probably lorlatinib. I've had some people who do great on lorlatinib and some people who it's a really difficult drug for them to take. So if I can find a mutation that I know one of the other better tolerated ALK inhibitors will hit, and I, then I don't need to go to lorlatinib. So that's one aspect. The other is, as Natasha mentioned, you know, one of the other big slices of the pie is where it's nothing to do with turning back on ALK signaling but you are, you are, we are identifying second driver pathways. And so if you identified that, that would be a rational choice. You know, it's a rule in uh, test. You know, if I found evidence of MET amplification or MET fusion or MET skip mutation, all of which have been described, I'm gonna talk about adding in a MET inhibitor, not just changing ALK inhibitor. So now that we have alternatives, the value of that biopsy I think has gone up, but the challenge is, you know, who's gonna pay for the biopsy and who's gonna do the analysis and are you doing the right analysis? I think we kind of know what to look for in terms of alkinase domain mutations, but these other second drivers, that is definitely a work in progress. And some of the things that are turned on are not picked up just by a standard next generation sequencing assay. Okay, so I'm just gonna take a simple, a simple interpretation of that is that the, the science is moving on quite quickly in identifying some of these resistance mechanisms that three or four years ago wouldn't have impacted what we were able to do, but now, now are. Maybe in the context of a research study, but still there's that option. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, so yeah, I mean, I, I feel, still think you have the kind of, you know, try it and see approach, but I, I think we are getting to the point where if we believe personalized medicine matters when you walk through the door to say, you know, you're Alc or Vichyvar or Ross, it's gone in and out of fashion, but it's, I think it's going to come back into fashion in terms of in the setting of acquired resistance. Okay. Um, before I ask you about immunotherapy, which is a question we often get asked about, I just want to mention um, just a clarification earlier. So in Canada, brigatinib and lorlatinib both do have regulatory approval from Health Canada, which is the body that licenses drugs in Canada. Um, but Health Canada is not the body that says whether a drug should be funded or not. So lorlatinib and brigatinib are available to be prescribed in Canada. Uh, the challenge is finding who's going to pay for the drug. And that's by province? The funding is province by province? So yes, it's complex, but Health Canada is for the whole nation. And then there is a health technology assessment process called PCODA, Pan-Canadian Oncology Drug Review, um, and that's for all of Canada, except for Quebec, which has its own process called INES. And PCODA and INES will make a recommendation as to whether a drug should be reimbursed. Uh, and if it is agreed to be reimbursed, then it goes into a confidential price negotiation that we are not party to. And when that has been agreed, it then goes back to each individual province to fund within their own formulary budget. And so it's, it's um, unfortunately, what that means is there's a postcode effect that you can live in one postcode and have access to a drug. And if you live in another postal code in another province, uh, you may not, and it may be coming, but, but there are sometimes time differences. And um, can I just, is it very restricted to the wording of the label? So let's say Brigadnib was approved post crizotinib you wouldn't be allowed to give it post-electinib, even if you knew there was a mutation it was sensitive to? That, uh, it varies. Generally, uh, yes. Well, electinib, for example, is available as first line or post crizotinib Because the others haven't gone through the health technology assessment process, it's not, it's not yet clear. But I think their Health Canada labels are basically uh, a broader. Okay. I want to ask, Ross, I'm going to ask you about immunotherapy. Uh, this is a common question that people have because, you know, the big advances in lung cancer in the last few years have been targeted drugs like the ones we're talking about tonight, but also immunotherapy. 
does immunotherapy work in people with ALK lung cancer? No, at least not as defined by PD-1 or PD-L1 based therapies. There is, in terms of monotherapy, there is zero data that I am aware of anywhere in the world that any ALK positive patient has ever responded to a PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitor. We also know if you try and combine them with the ALK inhibitors, you can get exaggerated toxicities. There was one study, the so-called Impow 150 study, which did include a smattering of ALK positive patients, and you were randomized to a chemo, slightly um, old-fashioned and toxic chemotherapy regime, plus or minus a tezolizumab, which is a PDL1 inhibitor. And they claimed that they showed a sort of non-statistically significant trend towards benefit. But in the final publication, that data magically disappeared. And I think the trouble is when you go down to a subgroup, you don't quite know that they're balanced in terms of other risk factors. So I would still say, show me the data. And I haven't seen anything that makes me think that's something you should rush to. So, you know, you're, forgive the flattery here, but you're, you're somewhat an international guru on, on ALK lung cancer, Ross. Uh, Natasha, you're an international general lung cancer guru. Um, Ross, you, you know, you've got a lot of ALK patients in your practice. Do you ever prescribe immunotherapy to them? Uh, the short answer is no. no. Uh, so, so we should be clear. So when we're talking about immunotherapy, you know, we're using that as a shorthand for this particular class of drugs called PD-1 or PDL1. Relizumab, nivolumab, atezolizumab, devolumab. I would say no there. You know, it's funny because they're, you know, the, the, the ALK positive patient population, you know, many, many of whom are, are, are watching and listening, you know, are very smart, very motivated population. And they're saying, well, you know, what, why isn't it this for me? You know, if one wanted to be the devil's advocate, you could say, well, how would the ALK positive population act if suddenly somebody with, without an ALK inhibitor said, well, why can't I have a lectinib? You go, well, that's crazy. It's not going to work in you. It's the same kind of argument. This is a drug that for whatever reason doesn't work in ALK. But people are wondering if there are other ways of getting the immune system up and running, but that's all a work in progress. Right. Okay, Natasha, so, you know, there's new ALK drugs and Sartanib is the most recent one from World Lung, the World Lung Conference this year. Two questions then, two part question. One, any comments about Ensartanib? Should we be getting excited about that? Or is it just another variety of conflicts that we don't, that is not better than what we've already got? And secondly, what do you see on the horizon? Are there new drugs that you could give us a sneak preview of or a, that you're, your spidey sense is tingling that is going to be the next thing. Uh, it begs, Paul. So, you know, cornflakes are delicious. Um, and the study, the, the Exalt 3 study, is a very exciting study because it's it's like the sixth treatment that that is out there now. It's also better than crizotinib, like electinib and brigatinib and lorlatinib. Um, Exalt 3, for those listening, that's the ensartinib study. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but, but it is a challenge because if you've got all these drugs that are better than the very first drug, well, that's great, but how do we pick among them? So again, cornflakes are delicious. I don't want to suggest it's just another bowl of cornflakes. It's a great new drug. And, and it might be you know, that we learn in time that different people should be streamed towards these other, you know, for example, these other four um, more advanced generation drugs. Uh, I, I do think that there is some interest in immunotherapy. It's not ready for prime time yet, but there's a lot of excitement. For example, Justin Gaynor's team and other teams are looking to see whether they can look at somebody's ALK positive tumor, take out the immune fighting, so the immune cells or what we call the T cells or the cancer, potentially cancer fighting cells, um, grow those uh, outside um, the person's body and then give them back to see if they, they attack the cancer. So cell therapy or T cell therapy. So, you know, there are a number of groups that are working on that. Um, no, no real reports of activity yet, but definitely exciting. Marco Wad in Boston, Dr. Marco Wad is working on a vaccine um, to try and make um, the cancer more inflamed. So maybe these drugs that 
don't work, as, as Dr. Kana just pointed out, might work in this more inflamed cancer. But again, you know, that needs to be proven. And of course, this question of a combination with chemotherapy and, and other, other agents, such as the Empower 150 study, you know, could be helpful. You know, the other, you know, question I think somebody's asked it in the chat is, well, just because I've had some ALK inhibitors and they don't work anymore, and maybe I have or haven't had chemotherapy, can I go back or can I go to another class? And so the ALK Master Protocol uh, is a very interesting study where they're trying to pick people based on mutations in their cancer and stream them towards specific drugs to see whether or not a rechallenge of an ALK inhibitor or a different ALK inhibitor can help. So I think that's, that's potentially very interesting. You know, especially after chemotherapy, you kind of get the sense that the body gets a reset and the cancer gets a reset and that maybe rechallenge could be helpful. So that's one, one group of studies that are going forward. And then also combinations. We're learning that it's not just, the cancer is not just being driven through ALK anymore, sorry. Uh, but, you know, there might be other things. And so can you add a drug? And so there are a number of studies ongoing looking at that. You know, am I super excited about SHIP2 inhibitors or MEK inhibitors or VEGF inhibitors? You know, it's, it's really hard at this point to choose, but I, but I do think that, you know, enrolling in studies remains very exciting. That there are some novel ALK inhibitors being developed, particularly in Asia. You know, the drugs like Repotrectinib and others that really seem to be um, emerging more in the ROS1 positive space. Uh, than the ALK space. But again, you know, we'll, we'll need to wait and see. Ross, what about you? What's really exciting you as the next great thing in ALK positive lung cancer? Well, so you, you have to, I mean, I think the, the answer is threefold because three is a good number. Um, so the first is this whole idea about, you know, nearly 50% of the slice of the pie post regadinib, lorlatinib is, is not due to an ALK mutation. So defining how we identify these second drivers and making rational choice of combination is, is one area. The, the second area is you touched on it. Sometimes you can get these compound mutations. So more than one ALK resistance mutation in the same gene at the same time. And the more you do that, the more you change the shape of the molecule and it's harder for your standard drug to fit in. So some people are developing drugs. There's a couple of companies that work on some of these compound mutations, which are Admittedly, I think relatively rare. The, the, the more we start on these next generation drugs, the less we're going to see compound mutations. And then finally, it's to kind of look at our successes, but where we could even improve them. So lorlatinib is really good at G1202R. That's a particular resistance mutation. It's really good at getting into the brain and covering the brain, but it has a whole bunch of side effects, some of which are due to the fact that it hits another pathway called NTRAC. And so some people are saying, well, can we make a lorlatinib without NTRAC activity? Can we make a drug that's as good but less yucky to take? And so some of those are just like, you know, everything that we think is like, this is the latest and greatest is really just version 1.0 of the next research project. Um, what do you think about Natasha's comments about cell therapy techniques? Uh, show me the data. Okay, so research, but not, not prime time yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're all works in progress. I think it's very important this work goes on. I think one would be very interested in seeing what's going on. So uh, you, you mentioned the, the vaccine. So one of the things that's, that's actually been described in the lymphoma literature is that there are people who wander around with ALK positive lymphoma who have anti-ALK antibodies. And yeah, and we can actually find them in lung cancer. We, we published on that more than a decade ago. The trouble is we don't know that it matters. You know, this isn't, you know, we think antibodies and COVID and it's going to, you know, immunity. These may just be what they call epiphenomena. It's just kind of noise. And so we have to say it's not just enough that we can measure an immune response. It has to be an immune response that matters in terms of an anti-cancer activity. Okay. We're, we're going to be getting close to the 645 uh, time when we're going to start with some questions. So I'm just to sort of wrap up this section, you, you've gone through an awful lot of information here. It's terrific. I'm going to ask you to project for the next 10 years um, so that we're sitting down in 2030. And what do you think we might see at that point? Will, will ALK lung cancer be a chronic disease at that point? Um, what are your hopes for the next decade? And um, Natasha, let's start with you. Thanks. So, so I actually think it already is for many people a chronic disease. I mean, unfortunately, not all of our patients um, have that great outcome, but so many do. You know, we see people every day that are living seven, 
eight, nine, 10, 12 years, right? It's, it's getting much more common. Um, I, I guess what I want to see, you know, what I'm hoping by 2030 is that this kind of smoking related lung cancer no longer dwarfs the whole spectrum. And we can really focus in on people with positive lung cancer. It will be, you know, much more because it, it represents more of what we see, we'll be able to, to expend more resources on it. So how do we find it earlier? How do we figure out why someone gets it and, and predict, predict that? And then how do we use these alkaline inhibitors earlier to really help with cure? I'm also really hoping that we understand better who needs to start with what, like who needs lorlatinib, who could have crizotinib, and then you know three or four other pills down the line over a 20 year period, um, who, who needs chemotherapy first? And you know when do we use radiation or surgery or something else? And, and then I actually do think just based on some early data, not an out positive lung cancer, but other never smoking lung cancer, that immune therapy will play a role. So again, who, who is that? Who, who are those people where the immune system can be harnessed to cure? And then also, you know, as we're figuring things out, easier ways, right? No more biopsies. Can it be liquid biopsy? Can it be a scan? Uh, and can we do things before the cancer actually grows? Can we pick it up before somebody presents with back pain or a cough? Ross, over to you. You, give, you were giving me too many things there to write down. Uh, liquid <laughs> biopsies, many people it's already almost a chronic disease, figuring out which drug for which person more accurately, using it in earlier stage diseases as a, as a, as a cure or to support a cure. There's a lot there. Okay, Ross. Well, Natasha did a great, great job there. So, um, you know, I got to, I got to try and add something to the party here. So, what? Yeah, wouldn't it be wonderful if, given that we know that an ALK gene rearrangement shouldn't exist in your normal body, it's, it is a completely foreign construct between these two genes that should be perfect for early detection. If we could somehow dial up the sensitivity, you know, you, you go to the supermarket and, you know. Uh, there, there was that movie Gattaca where, you know, you would, everyone was always checking your DNA all the time. And so you'd, you'd, you'd go through the checkout and it would go, hold on, you know, you've got an EML4 ALK in your, in your breath, you know, that I can detect, go get a CT scan. So I think early detection personalized, not just to lung cancer, but to some of these abnormalities might come in. That would be great. Then let's say, you know, it does, um, it does turn up. Um, I think our ability to detect uh, minimal residual disease, even when you think you've done surgery or radiation or something will be important to say, look, this guy's not cured. We need to go do something else. I think Natasha hit the nail on the head. You know, even within out, there are going to be subgroups. There are going to be higher risk groups and lower risk groups that maybe will say, this one's hardwired to go this way in terms of resistance and might influence the drugs. And then my favorite elephant in the room is the fact that if I put somebody on an ALK inhibitor, they'll have an amazing response. Maybe their scan will look normal. But if I stop the drug, even though it's years before their cancer will grow, something will start to reemerge within weeks. So there's, there is a fraction of the cells which are still sensitive to the drug, but not killed. And so that molecular persistent state, which is incredibly hard to study because it's microscopic, is what we need to identify because if we can purge that, we go from 99% cell kill to 100, and that's a cure. And very recently, between ourselves and uh, University of California, San Francisco, they, we did some early rebiopsy studies, and we're starting to find some of the signatures. And they really are kind of like not the things you're used to looking for. They're just kind of you know little survival pathways which are induced within minutes that maybe we can purge. That is very cool. For those who, uh, Gattaca, Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman, I think, if I remember what, well. Yeah, well. And Jude Law. And Jude Law, I didn't love that movie, but uh, interesting about this, yeah, they would detect your DNA anywhere. The breath you mentioned there, uh, Ross, you know, the idea of detecting something in the breath, that science is going on right now in Canada. And the first, uh, just a shout out to Lung Cancer Canada, because that's what I should be doing. But the first Jeff Ogram Memorial Research Fund Award, which is our biggest research award that we give, went to a group in Vancouver last year studying the science of breathomics, trying to get early detection of lung cancer from, from the breath. Super cool. Right. So thanks, Ross and Natasha. We've covered an awful lot there. I'm now going to hand over the, the, the chair of this um, and I'm going to sort of join you on the panel as the weak member, the weakest link. Um, I'm going to pass this over to Christina, who's going to go through some of the questions that have come in. 
Thank you so much to our esteemed panel. There actually has been a lot of questions and I completely agree with you, Dr. Kamage, when you say that this group is very motivated and uh, very uh, astute in terms of their, of, of their questions and their knowledge. Um, I'm gonna start with a couple of the basic questions first and, and then we'll move on. Question, maybe we'll start with uh, Dr. Wheatley Price. What percentage- question. Sorry? For the basic question, that's good. <laughs> Mr. President, what fraction of lung cancer exhibit the alpha positive mutation? And how can learning about these sort of mutations help us in treating can uh, cancers that do not exhibit mutations in, in terms of understanding how cancer really works? So the first part of that is it's around three or 4% of lung cancers are ALK positive and they are restricted to the, what we call the non-squamous population. So uh, if you th think lung cancer as a whole, there's two broad categories, small cell lung cancer, which is about 12 to 15% and non-small cell lung cancer, which is about 85% and isn't small cell lung cancer. And it's a silly name. Um, my dog, George is a dog. He's not a non-cat. But anyway, non-small cell lung cancer, that is the, the bulk and about three quarters, two thirds of them are what we call adenocarcinoma. And that's where we find the ALK. So ALK is probably three to 4% of all of them. And the second part was how does ALK help us learn more generally? Well, I, I, I won't go into much detail about that. I think you've heard from, from Ross and Natasha that the um, that ALK was the second of these, what we call oncogenic, driven um, lung cancers, EGFR being the first that we covered last month, ALK being the second, but this has driven uh, discovery and research. To, so now uh, through more uh, analysis of the genetic makeup of the cancer cell, and we might talk at some point about next generation sequencing testing, which would be one test which can detect a bunch of these things, we can now detect multiple different subtypes of lung cancer. And you've heard some of them mentioned, EGFR, ALK, ROS1, MTRK was mentioned, CMET, Exxon 14, SKIP, RET fusion, BRAF, KRAS. Um, there's um, a number of them now and, and ALK has helped drive that science forward. And so the next question um, I'm going to pose to you as well, uh, because it's a question of your making in the, within the webinar and um, one of our one of the audience members just asks how how a drug can be available in one city in Ontario but not another well so the example that I was giving there was um, research studies so generally once Health Canada has approved a drug it's in theory available across the country to be prescribed by a, a physician with a license the challenge is getting it paid for and that has to go through the health technology process and then back to each province to, 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 to put it on their formulary and cover it. If it's not gone through that process yet, then, you know, we, and Dr. Lael mentioned maybe through private insurance, through compassionate access programs, or through clinical trials. And so, you know, lots of academic centers have a number of trials running, but we don't all have the same studies. There's too many studies going on in the world for us to run any, all of them in one center. So, you know, we work in collaboration with each other. I've had one of my outpatients uh, who went to Boston, for example, to look at a clinical trial there. And bas so basically, it's just that all the researchers and the clinicians tend to help each other out and really share the knowledge and share and share the resources that they have. So I'm going to... And, that, and I should just say that can work across provincial borders as well. So you know, uh, you know, Ottawa, right on the border with Quebec, we, we have Quebec patients who can come to us for clinical trials too, and vice versa. So before I um, go on with the question and answer, I, I know many of the outpatients and the Ross patients are watching tonight, and, and thank you for joining us. There's many questions that did come in on uh, about your personal situation, and unfortunately, we cannot give medical advice over the uh, over the over in the within this session. But we I will try to generalize some of the questions so that. Uh, they can be answered. The next question I'm going to shout out to uh, Dr. Lael and there is there any similarities of ALK between ALK and MET? 
So it, what's what's interesting, um, you know, as you know, crizotinib uh, is a drug that targets Alcross and Met, and so you know, those sort of three have come together. But 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 we have learned that similar to people with EGFR, mutant lung cancer, Met is important. And for people with ALK positive lung cancer, there's a group of people that when the ALK inhibitor stops working, it, it's really because of Met. And so, you know, we, for example, uh, with Dr. Jeff Liu and our team, we actually took a sample of a patient's cancer. We grew it in the lab. And, and we realized that the reason why it was growing was because now it was addicted to MET, not so much ALK. And so, you know, can we add these drugs? And so that's, you know, part of this concept of, you know, if things have stopped working, biologically, why? And then how do we make sure we target all the pathways that are important to that patient's cancer? So, so yeah, so MET is actually important. Uh, and, and I think we're still learning about how important and how to find people that could benefit from some sort of combined therapy. Um, perhaps these are people that could even go back on Crizotinib, right? You know, we'll have to see. So uh, Dr. Lael, you have lots of fans that, that, that are here tonight, and um, there, there are some questions that came in through email and in the chat that were directed direct to you about um, your testing and your liquid biopsy project, and they wanted to see uh, if you could provide an update. Well, thank you. So, you know, I think for the Canadian system, liquid biopsy is a real boon. You know, we often get these results faster. They're easier in patients. You don't have to wait for the biopsy. Sometimes even the profiling results is faster and it's so much easier in patients, right? You, you get everybody on the call tonight, you guys, you get blood all almost every month or every, every couple of months. And wouldn't it be great if we could just add another test onto that rather than actually doing a tumor biopsy. So, so we have been working on, and Dr. Wheatley Price has been part of this, thank you so much. Uh, we've been working on a project where we're trying to get liquid biopsy paid for, or trying to show the value um, in, in people that have been on targeted therapy like ALK inhibitors and then it's worn off, or people who are newly diagnosed with lung cancer to, to try and find things like, like ALK rearrangements faster than we normally would. So, so that's where we are currently, you know, liquid biopsy is very exciting. It can be used for a lot of things. It can be used as part of diagnosis. It can be used to figure out why a treatment's not working or part of resistance. And, and it could be used for monitoring, you know, so if you start your ALK inhibitor and your levels of um, uh, DNA or genetic material in the blood go down, then that therapy is working. Now in Canada, you know, we ask you how you're feeling, you say you're feeling well and that's, or you're feeling better and that's how we know the drug is working or we do an x-ray or a scan. Um, but you know, liquid biopsy potentially could find that earlier or when it's not working, you know, the levels either stay the same or they could go up. And so actually the insertinib trial that, that um, Dr. Wheatley Price had talked about earlier, the exact three trial, they actually showed that, that you could use liquid biopsy to figure out when it's going to work and when it's not who's going to do better on treatment for longer. And, and maybe this is a way in time we could learn to kind of figure out who needs to go on what, when. Sadly, not yet ready for prime time, but I did see somebody's name in the chat and I'm happy to talk to you when I see you again about liquid biopsy and, and whether we can have a new creative approach for you. Perfect. And so there might be a day when you're, um, all the patients that come in, they're able to take their blood and just like HIV, you can see what, do a readout of your tumor. And then we're just going to personalize your treatment based on what your tumor looks like. And so I'm going to go across the, uh, uh, the to another country and uh, turn it over to Dr. Kamage. Um, Dr. Kamage, um, can you tell us a little bit about the research that's ongoing about delaying resistance or prevention to resistance? Yeah, so it, it, I mean, there are certain commonalities across lots of different oncogene driven lung cancers at present. And it's kind of like a retro move. So a lot of people are looking about saying, okay, you're starting on these PKIs, these, these oral inhibitors, whether they're ALK or ROS or EGFR. What if we give you a course of chemotherapy at the beginning? And you go, well, chemo, that's the stuff we try and put off. No, this is a defined course because there have been a couple of studies, one from Japan, one from India in in EGFR mutant lung cancer showing that, you know, maybe that's a way of getting rid of some of these persisting cells and, um, you know, and prolonging outcomes. People are talking about doing those kind of studies in ALK. The other area, again, you know, not on a molecular level, just to kind of, you know, something to add to everyone is adding in an anti-angiogenic. The trouble with all of these studies is, you know, it's, it's very palatable to just say, I'm gonna go on a pill. It's somewhat unpalatable to say, and you thought you dodged chemotherapy, you dodged intravenous infusions, but no, we're going to, you know, include them there. But those studies are going to go on if they're completely transformative in terms of the outcome. And by that, I mean, 
overall survival, not just that time to the next treatment decision. Remember, we're talking about years of life, not just, you know, what happens in the next, you know, one or two years. Um, you know, we'll have to wait and see whether that's going to be a, a value-based judgment. Ross, can I ask you just to explain what anti-angiogenics are? Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Did I, I was trying not to lapse into medical speak, but they are, they are antibodies that work on blood vessels. And um, like an army needs its supply line, a growing cancer needs a blood vessel supply. And some of these, uh, and they, there are different pathways that can turn on and off blood vessels. And some of the drugs which have names like Avastin or Ceramza, or to give them their proper names, Bevacizumab and Ramacirumab, can uh, interfere with at least one of those pathways. So uh, the, there are also some questions, um, Dr. Kamage, about vaccines. So maybe I can ask you to give a rapid answer on that as we're coming up to the hour. Okay, so so my the question is, you know, so what Mark Ward and others are doing is, you know, recognizing that there are antibodies floating around in people. You know, the ALK fusion is inherently foreign. You know, could you take that that bit of foreignness and you know, inject it in someone and make them make more antibodies or, 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 or cell-based immunity either. The challenge, there are two challenges. One is just because you have the immune response doesn't mean it's a useful one. The second one is that when you already have an established cancer, it's hard for the kind of vaccinations really to get a grip. I mean, they would be great if you know, maybe you had somebody who'd had an early stage out cancer removed, and then you were giving a vaccine in, in when there's minimal disease, you know, that's where vaccines have traditionally triumphed. So it's all somewhat experimental. And, and I would say this to Mark's face, you know, I'm somewhat skeptical as to whether that's really got legs. So the, our, my last question of the night, I'm going to turn it back to uh, Dr. Lael, and um, it's about clinical trials. There's been lots of questions in the chat and the um, previous to this webinar about clinical trials and how Canadian patients can get uh, involved and what if you're not in a pro you're not from Ontario, but they see something open at pre-MH. So I think, you know, trials are so important. And uh, I think Dr. Kamich and Dr. West many years ago uh, wrote, a, uh, wrote a, a piece that said something like, you know, how biomarker will travel, which, which I think really encapsulate the fact that people are so motivated to, to go to a center that has the treatment that they need. Um, so, I mean, what I would recommend to patients is, you know, get familiar with, with cancertrials.gov. You can call the number, um, go to Lung Cancer Canada. You guys, on your website, you guys have um, a list of active clinical trials for people with lung cancer. And also I'm sure if somebody emails you, you would help them look for that and ask your oncologist. So, you know, sometimes I'll have someone say to me, well, look, what are the other trials out there? And, and I will, I'll go on, on a website and look for different trials and then we can refer you or we can share information. And especially now during COVID, we're doing a lot more virtual care. So for example, I see people virtually from other provinces we go through the trial, we talk about how they are, we kind of do what we call our screening to see if you're a candidate to join the trial. We can do a lot of that without you even having to travel. And so, you know, unfortunately, eventually you probably do have to travel, you probably do have to go to that center. But oftentimes, you know, the person who's sponsoring the trial, what we call the trial sponsor, the person who's paying for it, often these are drug manufacturers or pharmaceutical companies, and they will often pay some of your expenses, uh, travel expenses, uh, some of the expenses to, to stay or go back and forth. And so we often try and do that to help support people that are coming from, from other provinces. Um, you know, during COVID, we've actually repatriated patients from the US. Uh, I have a, we have a patient uh, that was getting treated in New York and we've relocated him here. He's actually from Montreal. Uh, we talked to patients in Calgary. We have patients from BC, from, from all over. Very lucky to uh, have met some patients of Dr. Wheatley Prices that we're hoping to help out. So, so really to ask your oncologist, you know, I, I think we want the best possible treatment for you. And I think, you know, certainly everyone attached to Lung Cancer Canada, none of, none of us mind if that, that best treatment isn't at our center. We want to get it for you, you know, wherever it is, we want to get you there. The important thing is just to make sure you ask the questions and talk to your medical team. And um, so there were so many questions tonight and I know that we couldn't possibly get to them all. There were some other questions about Ross and other mutations as well. And I just wanted to say thank you to our panelists for, for taking the time out tonight. And thank you to our moderator, Dr. Whitley Price for giving us the time tonight and really making sure that not only do we stay on time, but all the, uh, all the uh, 
discussion was kept to a level that patients can understand. This series was born out of because of you and because of your suggestions of what you wanted. And, uh, and we will continue to do these, um, these what's new in series. We have some lined up in the rare mutations as well as immuno-oncology. Stay tuned for them next, uh, next year. They're going to come out in early 2020. But I want to, to tell all the lung cancer patients listening in today that really there is hope. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to my friend Anne-Marie Serrato, who has celebrated her 11th year cancerversary living with alt-positive lung cancer, and many of you as well who are cele uh, celebrating cancer, this cancerversaries, and those that you are that are beginning your journey, please do not give up hope. And for everyone here that's listening tonight, if you believe that lung cancer patients deserve more of a voice. And if you believe that lung cancer patients really deserve the access to treatment, then please help us and join Hope Army. Visit lungcancercanada.ca, join Hope Army, sign up, and really help us increase the share of voice uh, uh, of lung cancer patients and their issues through um, your social media channels. So thank you everyone for your time tonight. And uh, we really wish you a pleasant evening and please join us for our next webinar series. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore Can, and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at LungCancerCanada.ca.